Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Slavic Connection. This is your co-host, Taylor Ham, joined by Sergio Blajar. Sergio, we had a really interesting conversation today about intelligence state security services in Romania and East Germany. That's right. We were joined by Professor Allison Lewis from the University of Melbourne, as well as Dr. Valentina Glajar from Texas State University. And they told us all about uh, the workings of the Stasi, the East German secret police uh, force, and the Securitate, its analog in communist Romania. It's not a typical text, so that's You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right. Well, listeners, we have two guests today. We have Miss Valentina Glajar and also Miss Allison Lewis here to talk about their research on state security files in uh, East Germany and then also Romania. We're really excited to talk about this. I guess we'll start with this weekend. Just what are you, what are your plans? What do you give us a little brief overview of what y'all are doing this weekend? Okay. So we organized three panels. So the next panel will be tomorrow morning. And we're talking about legends and aliases and undercover stories, sort of uh, short stories as a pretext or or sort of longer term, sort of life fictions, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, of undercover agents. So the interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So one was this morning about a Stasi file. So Susan Morrison talked about her Stasi file that she had discovered. She was a brown student and she went to East Germany to teach English. She then discovered that she actually had a file and the paper was fascinating. And then we had another one about the lives of others and probably, you know, the movie that got the Oscar and everything. And of course, it's not what we want to teach in class because it's a less representative movie about the Stasi. So there was a lot uh, about documentaries. If documentaries do a better job than feature films and so on. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, I'm a bit conflicted about that film. mm -hmm. I think it's a really good movie. Mm -hmm. I think it works really well as a, you know, it's got twists and turns. And (laughs) And melodrama. It's a a great melodrama. You know, you don't know the twist. And so I quite like it and I quite like the look of it. But... um, East Germans just don't like it. They keep on thinking, they keep on saying, oh, it's not, you know, authentic. But I mean, it's fiction. It's a drama. And I think that for me, the bit that doesn't ring true is that it has a secret police agent, mm-hmm. the, one of the main characters who undergoes this miraculous transformation right, right, right. on the basis of listening to a sonata. Mm-hmm. So music, <laughs> you know, like how plausible is that? <laughs> And he becomes a good Angulta Mensch, right, you know, right, like right. sort of a Brechtian allusion to yeah. the play, the good Mensch. Well, and, and that's the that's the dedication he gets in the book at the end, right? And that's right. And he gets acknowledged as right. being, you know, as covering for him or not sort of being really nasty. And yeah, and he gets that dedication. And actual fact, he was had him under surveillance. So you know, that transformation is completely implausible. These these Stasi <laughs> officers. Mm-hmm remained, even after the war fell, remained completely unrepentant. Mm -hmm. It's more like the ones that have repented are more likely to be the informers who realise that they've destroyed their social circle or they have betrayed Mm -hmm. friends and they or harms have come to their Mm -hmm. friends and they're more likely to be Mm -hmm. repentant, I think. 
actually, I think in Romania, a few months ago, the first Securitate officer actually assumed responsibility. The first one, 2022. Because nobody really cares that much anymore. It's a kind of ancient history. They still want to know, but mostly the headlines, you know, in the newspaper where you out somebody and yeah, they have a file or they have been an informer or, but um, for me, it was important (laughs) for my research, but I don't know how many people really cared about it. And now, of course, the war in Ukraine and everything else is a lot more important and yeah. Well, one of the things I'd like to do for our listeners that might not be as familiar with the Stasi or the Securitate is maybe if y'all could give a little bit of background, how it got started, what their MOs were, like um, talk about maybe their networks of informers, collaborators, and just give a little bit of background information for for some of our listeners. And especially in contrast to one another, because no two security services are made the same, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's the hard part. There's not not been much comparative work actually done. Like, you know, secret police studies tend to be very na- uh, national-based. So that's our next, well, not necessarily our next project, but that's <laughs> the next project for scholars and to try to, yeah. I mean, it, it depends also on the files. You know, I mean, we have so many Stasi files. I think the latest count is 111 kilometres of Stasi files. Kilometres. Kilometres. Yeah. Initially, the estimate was 180. It's gone down. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a lot. So I think the Stasi was the most productive in terms of paper trails, leaving paper trails behind, and bureaucratic processes. But Securitate wasn't far behind in terms of size proportionate to the population. Yeah, maybe. But we only have like 27 kilometers. <laughs> so uh, that doesn't mean that it was less efficient. It's just that there is no paper trail so, or not enough of it. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, both of them were formed in the, uh, sort of the Czechist model, mm-hmm. you know, as an offshoot of the KGB. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when Germany was um, divided and they had the Soviet military zone, the, the Soviets sent in sort of a secret police form, this thing called the K-5, which was a sort of a small unit. And then um, when East Germany was declared a sovereign state in 49, uh, within a couple of months the parliament had passed a law to set up a ministry for state security. And so all of those KGB people became part of mm-hmm. it. But, I mean, there was something I'm working on at the moment is how independent was the Shahs. It seemed to be very loyal, you know, more Czechist than the Czech. The, the Czechists, you know, than the KGB. But I think their activities were hamstrung a bit or dictated to by, you know, German administrative law, German law, and the presence of a West Germany, which is sort of something I'm trying to work on. The, you know, uh, I mean, Douglas Selvage, a great scholar on the Stasi and the KGB, had said they were a servant of two masters, the, the Stasi, mm-hmm. servant of the party, the SED, and the KGB. And you know, it's interesting now to try to work out where they were sort of towing the line because they're very much locked into the party from 56 on. Douglas Selvage, uh, Michelle edited this out if this is incorrect, but I believe has been on the podcast before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. Douglas. I interviewed Douglas Selvage, yeah. He's a trailblazer in, in this new sort of transnational or looking at the influence of the KGB on, mm. on Shazi. 
let me go back to uh, the question about how it was with the Securitate, because we found out about uh, the Stasi, but there is a lot more written on the Stasi and a lot less on the Securitate, I would say. So the Securitate had actually two phases. So there was a, the one until about 58, when the last KGB officers actually left Romania after they trained them. And until about 61 or so, uh, it was like the Stalinist period in Romania. So uh, various officers, it was enough for them to be recruited if they had like a non-bourgeois background. So basically peasants and workers and so on, and if possible, not very educated. And you can see that sometimes in the files, you know, I mean, you can see they make spelling mistakes or grammatical errors and so on. And then I was just telling Alison last night, the second part of it, they tried to recruit much better agents, much better officers. You know, they would go to various universities and get the valedictorians, you know, the best in their um, classes. And all of a sudden there was a lot of emphasis on learning foreign languages. And in the beginning, okay, there was just, okay, if they know a little bit of, let's say, German and they just speak a little bit and uh, understand easy text, then they would be recruited. And in one year, you know, with modern technology, you know, they would become fluent so they could understand more difficult texts and be able to translate also from Romanian into German. So everything changed afterwards. So the Securitate became a lot more intelligent and their operations were different. Of course, they still had those, you know, from the beginning. They had not died out yet. But still, the new generation was uh, was quite different. And then in the 70s, the remote audio surveillance became quite important to them. So once they started using that, you know, it was a whole new layer of surveillance that actually allowed them so much access to the privacy of various people. And that was quite interesting. I just have a quick question. Of, you talked about like, so they started maybe with more uh, peasants or workers as their information networks and then it evolved into more sophisticated channels. What about the Stasi? What was their informers? What was their networks like? From my perspective, it was more pragmatic. They looked at, is this a circle of writers that we want to infiltrate? Therefore, we need to recruit writers if it was a, some other sort of circle. So I suppose, yes, if they were had to infiltrate writers, then they had to be like-minded or they had to have credentials. What Valentina was saying about well-educated, I think, applies in the Stasi case more to the officers. The officers were... That's exactly what I wanted to say. It's about the officers, it's about not the, officers. Uh, the informers. Yes. yes. So the yes. officers were exactly, they had trades. They, they didn't have university education. And so there was a big push. I think it was sort of 60s and 70s on to professionalise the workforce. And, and in Germany, they even set up a university and so that's when these officers if they were good they were then always promised training some of them didn't get it for years and years and years and eventually they got to do this sort of diploma or some sort of further education higher education and what I've been looking at recently are the masters or the theses they're often taking a sort of a, an operational problem and then trying to sort of semi-theorise it. And mm -hmm. uh, So, yes, they were very much into professionalising mm -hmm. the stuff that they already had. That's really cool that you could actually read their theses and dissertations on, on these operational uh, questions. How did 
they function, plain and simple? How did they identify things worthy of surveillance? How did they proceed after that? So both the Stasi and the Sequitivate. I suppose the there were the officers in the different sort of departments and branches, mm-hmm. and I suppose they came from top down. So there was, you know, I've been working on what they call political ideological diversion, in other words, some sort of subversion, and right. so there might be intellectuals or writers. And then oh, I suppose they would more or less identify, um, you know, people who've got Western contacts or people mm-hmm. who've written a new book. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, in the literary field they would look out for someone who had a probably through a source or an informant, mm-hmm. someone who's got a new novel out, boom, they'd be on to mm-hmm. them. So I've sort of actually been quite intrigued by that question. What was the trigger? You know, and, and I think it was someone's got a manuscript, oh, an unpublished manuscript, and, <laughs> and you know, and then it was immediately thought to be suspicious and then they drop a, a mass number plan and a plan and then they'd say, okay, we're going to get a couple of informants to try to get hold of the manuscript or informants to find out the nature of the manuscript and and then we'll maybe do some sort of audio surveillance. But that was only when they discovered it was sort of a, a threat. Right. I mean, I imagine you wouldn't really invest the resources for yeah. that kind of audio surveillance yeah. unless you had yes. good no, reason. Yes, no, yeah. it's very time-intensive and very expensive. In this respect, it was a little bit different in the parts that I'm looking at because they were ethnic Germans in Romania, so there was a small uh, population and they needed translators for that. And somehow, from what I figured out yeah, in my upcoming book, Censorship was laxer for them because, first of all, they thought, okay, they would not influence the rest of the population into whatever Western craziness they were concocted. By virtue of their ethnic minority. Yes, 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 because there was the language barrier. So Romanians couldn't read those. But on the other hand, you know, it was easy to figure those out because it was only a few German writers. There was the writers was one thing, but I think in the Romanian Romanian language writers, there would have been exactly the same situation that you described, Alison. And then contacts with uh, foreign uh, citizens, absolutely. You had to report those. That was the law. But I found out mm-hmm. through some CIA, the classified uh, uh, information documents, that in the 80s, uh, American citizens had to also report their contacts with Eastern Europeans. And they called them hostile, just like the Romanians. So uh, I thought it was quite interesting how that works, you know, on both sides of the divide. <laughs> yeah, and they had like, uh, like your question, they had one person of interest, for example, and that could have been just by, okay, let's listen to some conversation. They couldn't identify a certain person. So then they looked that person up and figured out who it was, identified the person, and that person could possibly become then a person of interest because depending on also what the conversation was like and what they had to say. And then it becomes larger and larger, (laughs) you know, and then from this person of interest, that might become a target, not just a person of interest. And then from there on, so it was like a network you know, a network of officers, of informers, of targets. And of targets. Yes. Uh, the, the targets were like a yeah. huge network too, weren't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah.
I guess maybe going back to to you personally, how did y'all become interested in this? Like, what? Like, was there any revelation or we like both what? Have stories. Yeah, so, Alice, can you go first? Um, well, I was uh, I went to East Germany in '86 as a full fee paying foreign PhD student from Australia, and I paid oh, I think it's about three hundred US dollars. That's a, that's another conversation. <laughs> so you know, if you think if you think fees come from <laughs> from the west, no, well, no, they started in Eastern. And so I was quite happy to pay. That was quite a lot of money, actually. So I went there, but I was researching East German feminist literature, uh, feminist fantasy, actually. So I trotted off to East Berlin, and I got a similar visa, one of these multiple mm-hmm. reentry mm-hmm. visas, which I had to beg for because. They said, you don't want to leave once you're here, do you? And I said, yes, I might want to cross the border and go back and forth. So I was only, well, only, I was there for four weeks, which was quite intense. And um, so I, um, as I was res- trying to do some research on my feminist author, I had a phone number of just a poet, a so-called poet uh, that was given to me by a West German woman. And um I tracked him down. It's very hard because he didn't have a phone, and it turned out he was completely in the underground. And in the, he was a conscientious objector. He was a poet. He was part of the Prenzlauer Berg scene. Mm-hmm. And so I was going, "Wow, it's very interesting, very interesting." And he said, "Oh, lots of poets, and, and one of them, our heroes." He said, "Is this person called Sasha Anderson? He's now in the West, by the way. But oh, you know, he's done wonderful things for us. He's published our work. You know, he's a big." big dude in this scene and and so I went away uh, not knowing anything about the secret place because we didn't but thinking wow this is a really interesting sort of next generation of poets avant-garde you know postmodern poets when I finish my work on my PhD I'll get back onto this and then the wall came down and I discovered this Sasha Anderson that they all revered was a deep cover uh, Stasi agent and uh, that just wow. threw me because I was I didn't actually meet as in yeah deep cover like mm-hmm. you know for years and years well years eight years or something and he wrote eleven volumes of files and and spied on everyone uh, wrote about everyone because he was the head of all of the underground reading so he'd always got wow. one who was there and he did a lot of the publishing. So, you know, he knew everything, he knew yeah. everything and everyone. And um, because of that personal experience, and then I was the first to get his full file, which disappeared until 20, you know, it was about 10 years after the war fell. I, found, I got hold of his file. And someone else in Germany had read it, but I got complete print out of it and did a sort of a first academic analysis of it. And, and I'm hooked, <laughs> because that leads me to all the other people and who were peripheral figures, which I looked into. And then... My latest book, I've sort of looked at um, over the decades different instances or different cases of informants and, and that, their whole context, personal as well as people. Oh, that is quite the tale indeed. <laughs> so what, what happened to him? Oh, well, Carol Ann just told me then, it's the virtue of these conferences, that she went to a um, – oh, he's now married, a daughter of perhaps Germany's most famous writers, Martin Weiser. Mm-hmm. So he appears in public now and um, – but um, he, he's rejected by all his former friends. Mm. Well, not all of them. Some of them mm. still think he's. But he's pretty much discredited as a as a poet. Although he still writes things, which 
that are getting more and more tortured and more and more sort of inward looking. But uh, <laughs> Alison's book, she, she didn't mention the title, oh. is A State of, State of Secrecy. It's wonderful. It came out at Potomac. Uh, Potomac Books, yeah, books, yeah Nebraska, uh, University, University of Nebraska. Of, uh, Nebraska so. so for me, it was more personal since I grew up in communist Romania. And, you know, you would hear about, you know, the Secretate and being everywhere. So omniscient, omnipotent, you name it, you know, they knew everything. And, and then... I had two encounters with them, but that's for another episode. Are you sure it's for another episode? Can it be for this one? <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to do a short version? Yeah, I think we. I think the, I think the, we, we would be doing a disservice to our loyal listeners. I was in college, and um, at some point, the secretary came to me, and she said oh, somebody wants to talk to you and you should go to this room. It was on the first floor. I can still see the building and the layout. And uh, I didn't even know there was a room there or whatever, or I never opened the door there. Or And it was when, so I went. And so there was a desk, a small table or so, and two chairs. And then the door, but the door, so where I sat, I could not have gotten, you know, by the table to get out. The room was very, very uh, small. So it was kind of like a, what you imagine an interrogation room. So, and this was in the building of, you know, my university. So I went there and then this guy came and he presented himself as, uh, I think, Captain something. And he showed me his ID and he says he's Captain so-and-so. But, you know, we had to do military service as women as well. And I knew he didn't have enough stars to be a captain. He was, <laughs> And I said, no way, you're not. I mean, I was, you know, like you see me now and... Yeah, when I was even younger, I was even worse. So, <laughs> so and I told him, off the other. And I, oh, and then, yeah, but uh, it's... They're, they're in the mail. <laughs> they're on the way. <laughs> it has been like um, a recent promotion and they haven't changed yet the ID. But, you know, all of a sudden he was kind of off guard because, uh, yeah. And then he started talking about, I don't know, he seemed extremely friendly just like I read then in the files extremely friendly to gain your trust you know to to put you at ease you know like wow we're just talking amongst friends here or whatever I'm all one of like you a little bit older but still and he asked me about the West German lecture I said I'm sorry but I'm not in his class this semester <laughs> yeah then he asked me about the Irish foreign student that was in our class. Okay, she was a little bit suspicious, Janet. Um, <laughs> because, you know, she came to, to study. Are you reporting on Janet? <laughs> I mean, I didn't tell him that, but now thinking back, you know. <laughs> she would, okay, we talked about it. Why would this woman come to Cluj, you know, in Romania to study Germanistic? With us? What the heck? So that was kind of weird. And then we were laughing because she would go to the bathroom all the time. And we were like, what is she doing? And with her bag, going to the bathroom. So, you know, yeah. So anyway, I 
she was not in my group either, so I couldn't do that. And then I don't know what else he asked me, but the punchline is that in the end, he tried a little bit harder saying, what if I say you need to do this? And I said, I thought we only need to die. <laughs> so the poor guy, <laughs> he just looked at me and let me go. And that was the end of it. Oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I saw him, which is quite interesting. I saw him in the hallways, you know, this completely unassuming guy, you know, like dressed like the young people, not jeans. He didn't quite have jeans, but something similar to jeans, some Romanian version of jeans or so. <laughs> and then, you know, like a friendly guy talking to everyone. And of course I knew who that was and yeah. So that was my first encounter. And then I had another one, which was more dramatic than this one, I would say, but it was a, a personal interest once everything happened. And it, it, it took a whole, I mean, until 2007, I think, until normal people could actually, like accredited researchers and victims' targets could actually uh, see their files. And it happened for me. I, I'm a Hertha Müller scholar. And while doing a, an edited book on Hertha Müller after she got the Nobel Prize because nobody knew who she was, one of the contributors referenced her file constantly. And I was like, what? <laughs> you have seen her file? And she said, yeah. And then I found out that her husband was the director of the National Council of Securitate Archives, and she knew what files and she knew what the process was. So it was very easy. I mean, it wasn't like because her husband was the director that she could look at the file, but rather she could tell me, okay, you need to, uh, these are the procedures. Because even talking about the Securitate, it was like, wow, you know, like, I don't know, so creepy, even like in 2007. And then she told me, and then I got to her file, and uh, that summer I saw another one, which was a lot more interesting than hers, but the other person had not gotten the Nobel Prize. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it was more important to focus then on hers, which turned out to be actually more interesting than at first sight. So, sorry for the long story. No, that was great. You only need to die. Was that a threat? <laughs> 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 I had one question about post-communist memory and reckoning, but in, in Germany and in Romania. To what degree, if any, have the contemporary states sort of come to terms with or had some sort of public recollection, public examination of the, the role played by the secret services in, in, in both countries throughout the significant part of the 20th century? And if I can add, what was the dismantling of these agencies, entities? <laughs> yeah, that was very important. Well, so during the revolution, the, you know, the quiet revolution in, um, leading up to November 89, in those, round about those months when it looked like everything was collapsing, people stormed the head, Stasi headquarters because I think the rumour got out that they were destroying, they were shredding files. And they were. And they were. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, uh, yes, and so they had already put a lot through the shredders. And, they, and what is actually now mainly missing are the 
foreign intelligence files. Of course. And, of course. And <laughs> so they prioritized even the destruction, right? Did. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then often it was the files from the last year that were of informants that got went missing too. But so they stopped this. So Bürger Rechler, the civil rights, um, the activists or the demonstrators stopped any further destruction. Uh, they kept the shredded <laughs> files and they're being pieced together through some software. The e-puzzler, right? The, that's e-puzzler, e I think it's called. That's yeah, right. yeah. So they have re reconstituted mm -hmm. a whole lot of the files. But um, luckily all the ones that I've wanted to work on have all been there, except for sometimes there might be the last volume missing. So they salvaged them and then that was good from destruction. And then during the process of unification there was a, an agreement between the two parliaments about setting up a commission and saving the files and having an open reckoning. And that was part of the East Germans' conditions. And uh, they set up a federal commissioner for the Stasi records and an agency, and then they just, that's when they counted the, the kilometres, and then you could apply to see them. So, I mean, Germany was sort of the first. I think actually Czech Republic was roughly mm -hmm. was happening and then things went backwards there. Well, Germany carried on unrelentingly on that path of openness, transparency and setting up a legal framework for who can apply and what you can see. It was victim-focused, victims, anyone who has a file can see it, and journalists can see files so they can expose informants. So the, the mood was to expose as many informants. And that was carried out in the press, and that's where I think things did go. You know, for some people it was seen as a bit of a witch hunt and then people mm. who, you know, if you just had a file, if they found a file and especially, you know, a code name, then people who were approached and when well, they could have had a file on you with your name mm. all set up that we're going to approach her and you could have had a code name and that could have come out in the press mm. and, you know, you would suddenly feel as if you're being victimised all over again and that's that happened in some terrible cases, one case and... um Someone who'd already suffered enough at the hands of the Shazi. And so when the, when it was discovered she had a file, when she actually eventually said no a few weeks later, yeah, she felt like she was being victimized and stigmatized and scapegoated. And so it's been a bit tricky, but I mean, I think the openness and the transparency has been unprecedented. And that's anyone who has a Shazi file has to be scrutinized to see whether it was a serious sort of. I uh, I recall visiting Hohenschönhausen in uh, Berlin, the famous Stasi prison, and our tour guide was a former prisoner who used it as a kind of therapy, and he told us that not infrequently he will get former Stasi officers join the tour on purpose mm -hmm. to explain to him how what they were doing was their duty and he was a criminal and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the very curious dynamics. Well, there are the old officers that are organized and they do have a web presence and they do. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes. I haven't looked at it lately. They used to, whether it's still there. And they would sometimes turn up and harass people and Anafunda. You know, the Australian writer of, of author of Stasiland, you know, very, um, successful book. She also claims that she's been harassed by mm -hmm. some of these people. And I, I believe. But yeah. And apparently they still live in the neighborhood. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's remarkable. Which brings me to the secret path. Yeah, so the, there was a whole different story, yeah. uh, story, like in most East European countries, you know, where they could not just come up with a new service, a secret service overnight. So basically they just swapped them or uh, they changed services or whatever, you know, because there are many departments. 
So he wasn't, uh, because he was kind of a, more or less a clean slate in East Germany, that, that could not have happened in uh, Romania. And then, of course, like I said, it was so late that people got access to the files. So many are saying, yeah, but they have been doctored all this time because the new service, the SEREI, you know, doesn't really want to out uh, its activity. So uh, that's the main problem, I would say. And they also tried to destroy files. Yeah, they tried to uh, truckload the files to burn them. And then uh, in Bere Voyest, and that was in the 1990s, I think, 96 maybe, and they were discovered, so they couldn't, because you, you can imagine it's so much paper. How, it, it doesn't burn that fast, you know. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's complicated. And then also, for example, officer files, they are still trickling in, you know, and it's very few. So they started with some files from the 50s because they thought, okay, yeah, that's over. And I found a quite interesting one, and then I... Um, I found the person whose file it was who left in the, I think in 71 to Israel. So he was Jewish. So he went over Israel together actually to America and they didn't allow him to go to Israel. Yes. Now I remember. And an FBI um, officer talked to him at the embassy in uh, Bucharest. And he told that FBI officer who knew everything anyway about him <laughs> that he wanted to go to America and everything that happened to him. So he feels very victimized, you know, because he was uh, thrown out of the Secretate and so on. Major bummer. <laughs> and uh, everything that he remembers is basically how he was uh, victimized and persecuted during World War II when he was a, um, a Jewish boy, you know, and yes, that is very accurate and absolutely. And I found him in Manhattan. So, and he, in the beginning, he didn't want to talk to me. He said, oh, I don't remember anything. If he wasn't an important person, then no, I don't remember that. But then he discovered Google. He's like nine <laughs> And he Googled his name, probably after I yeah. sent him the letter. And he found his name on one... Um, document that somebody had typed out, you know, so it wasn't the original document. So he writes to me and he said, you know, I discovered something and can you please remove it from <laughs> Because that's not true. I did not sign that and so on. But poor guy, he didn't understand what Google was. And I, I told him, that's not my, I didn't post that document. It's somebody else's. But he wanted then to talk to me all of a sudden, but he was so smart. So at that point, I think he was 88 or 89. His mind worked. I mean, he had the most detailed memory of things. Unbelievable. But he did not give me more information than I already knew from the file. So he said, can you please uh, give me a list of things? Or Yeah, I talked to him on the phone for a long time. And I said, so um, how about that? The moment I would mention that, then he would give me the story, but not, you know, like, wow, I want to come clean and right. tell you this. Only what I could figure out in the file. And the funny thing is, and that happened with every informer or this officer I talked to, I asked them something from the file and they would say, yes, that's true. 
So the whole story about the Securitate, you know, falsifying lives and life stories and whatever. I have my doubts about it. I'm sure there are instances, but not in the files that I've been looking at. So the Securitate is in Manhattan. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a beautiful note to leave it on. Oh, no! <laughs> no that is a beautiful note to leave it on. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you both very much, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Glashar. Much appreciated. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Security charges in Manhattan. I think that's the title. <laughs> 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 <laughs>